This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. Good evening, everyone. My name is Nicholas Winding Refn, and you are listening to Adjust Your Track. Hello and welcome to Adjust Your Tracking. I'm Eric McClanahan. I'm still Joe Von Open. <laughs> How's it going today, Joe? I'm hot. It's scorching in Portland as well. But really? Not, not it's, like, it's like a really unpleasant 90 degrees here in Los Angeles. It's certainly warm, and uh, we want to remind you folks, you listeners, that this podcast is brought to you by theplaylist.net, and it's a part of the Playlist Podcast Network, where we have other shows on the network, like Over Under Movies and the Playlist Podcast. But uh, Joe, so with that out of the way, what's, uh, what are we, what, what's on the docket for today? Well, we're going to discuss art movies. Um, but first and foremost, I don't, I'm not sure how well this movie ties into the art movie. It definitely is playing at art house theaters, but um, it's a it's a film from South Korea called The Wailing, which has been open in Los Angeles for a couple weeks. Maybe gone now. I think it might be gone. Mm. But uh, it's uh, from the filmmaker of The Chaser and Yellow Sea. Na Hong Jin is his name. That's his name, and uh, it's a uh, it it. It's interesting because it's a it's a movie that kind of snuck up on me. It had been on your radar, and it like it it did kind of well for you know considering the the market for foreign films these days seems to be getting slimmer and slimmer, and it it just seems like the window of time that they play and the sort of like uh, amount of an audience it draws is getting like smaller. Um, but yeah, this 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 movie made kind of a splash, and. Uh, it's a it's it's a weird one for sure. So. <laughs> this one doesn't have Dion doesn't have demon in the title. It like have Dion Sanders, in, <laughs> it does not have Dion Sanders. I don't know how it's going to sell itself, but <laughs> it, it's severely lacking in Dion Sanders. No, it it doesn't have a demon in the title, but it actually has a demon. So it makes it a That's sort true. of it makes it a sort of interesting counter to our main subject uh, on the show. Uh, Nicholas went in reference the Neon Demon, but yeah, uh, it was one of these kind of weird things that like we think you know we're planning an episode before we get it started, and we're like, well, these two movies can at least fit together, not because we know for sure that there's connective things, but we we tend to stumble on this uh, a lot. I feel like where oh, these by the end of the Wailing, I'm like, this has a sort of interesting counter, yeah, to the, the Neon Demon echoing one one doesn't have. Dion or demon in the title, <laughs> but has demons, and one has demon in the title, and arguably doesn't have any demons. <laughs> <laughs> Although that that is arguable. Well, yeah, we we will have to see what we think about that. But yeah, the wailing is for before maybe just getting into what we think about that movie. It does represent something kind of interesting distribution wise. Is this movie premiered at the Cannes Film Festival just just in May? And uh, typically of this director's and other South Korean films, there's usually, or other foreign films, even ones that make a splash on the festival circuit. I think we've talked a lot about it on this podcast. There's always this huge gap of like waiting for the, yeah. for just the average moviegoer. And I think it can be frustrating um, even for people like you and me that get early access. Sometimes to these movies we're, we're usually still having to wait and it seems less and less to make sense in an era of, digital exhibition digital distribution um uh, digital filmmaking that we can't tighten these uh these windows up and the whaling represents with almost no real strong u.s distributor um i can't even think of the company that is putting it out here they're just not very well known uh well go usa it actually it's put out by 20th century fox oh that's right that's right that came up before the credits you're right it is a I went to go see it in a theater in Koreatown, which is, it's a Korean chain called CGV, and they show, like, mainstream American movies with Korean subtitles or Korean films with English subtitles, 
And as soon as 20th Century Fox came up, I was like, oh, fuck, I'm in the wrong theater. And <laughs> assuming I was in, like, uh, like X-Men or something like that. I did 20th Century Fox even put out X-Men? I'm not sure. They did. Okay, so I was right. So I was like, no, oh, I'm not. Oh. And I was just, like, embarrassed. And then, like, the title card came up, and it was, like, some weird proverb. And I was like, oh, okay, this isn't the X-Men. All right. Yeah, I'm- it's pretty rare to see that. So I guess... There, I mean, maybe we didn't do enough research before we came on Mike, but like, there's got to be a story there. But I do think regardless, what we're seeing is something that should and I hope hope to become the norm where you can ride off of this movie had its peak. The Whaling had its peak, um, you know, publicity, peak awareness during the Cannes Film Festival where it got a lot of good reviews. I think it's still standing at a, um, you know, take it with a grain of salt but a hundred percent on rotten tomatoes like it's it's last i checked yeah basically a a pretty universally at least liked movie by credits or god i cannot talk today by critics (laughs) by a universally liked movie by critics um and it they tried to actually do something about it and it seems like for this movie's small audience that it was always going to get like they were able to capitalize on that in some way And it'll certainly go on VODs uh, soon enough. So I'd say um, interesting distribution patterns aside, I hope we see more of this. It's 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 what it should be. It's a stronger, better way to do it. But um, sure. but uh, this movie, I think uh, not. I think it's it's kind of split you and I though in terms of how successful it is. Um, I know. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I mean, I think what your your point about its distribution is really interesting because it's like it's lightning in a bottle almost because it it did really well not with me necessarily but like it it made an impression and like this filmmaker has made you know like a successive amount of like really striking films and so if he makes uh a, like a dent at a film festival and there's a window of time just in, almost immediately afterwards to get it out I mean, probably on his resume alone, like this movie was going to get some form of distribution. But like, is that a model that could work for other sort of like risky, like experimental films? Like if they like, how are you going to know if it's going to do well? Like you almost need to build the anticipation in the window of time that traditionally follows a film festival mm. you know like you have like several months or even a year and so like people in anticipation is either built strongly or dissipated in that time so it's just like it's such a weird moment we're in in terms of theatrical distribution with with movies and like you know getting getting them out in this in the peak time that you were mentioning but also um you know, like allowing something to build and like, can you really rely on an audience sticking around through a prolonged build, you know, anymore? <laughs> and that, that leads into the movie itself, which I feel like is, is really striking. And there's some really compelling sections in the movie, but I think that it's like, it's ambitious two and a half hour length is, you know, to me, it just felt like it, it was like far too repetitive in order to sustain a running time that was that brutally overlong. There was no, there was no new information that was introduced. It just sort of like hit this like stride of repetition where it was like, is it or isn't it? Is it? It is. It isn't. It is. And it's like, what? Okay, just fucking wrap it up. Like, and I, I don't know, like, there, there are a lot of great performances in it, a lot of sort of like fun tonal shifts. And it's like sections of it are fucking like devastating and overwhelming. But ultimately, like I, I, I just like buckled under the sort of like enormity of it. And I was like, there's just not enough happening to justify this length. And like that, that, that actually that also does overlap with our, our next movie. It's the equivalent of an overstuffed suitcase. Like it's brimming full of stuff. It's brimming. Yeah. This movie is brimming full of other little movies. Too many, way yeah. too many. It's not subplots. It's like sub movies within the grand movie. And in that way, it is, um, it's kind of been a few years since we've gotten a true representation of what South Korean cinema, like one that's had a, at least a somewhat crossover appeal in, in America. Like this one has found a small, but uh, you know, strong audience where it really represents like how like genre, like the way they love to mix through different genres, the way the the length is always like most of these movies tend to be overlong. 
Yeah. Um, I think of The Good, The Bad, and The Weird as one that comes to mind, which is a movie which is so much fun, but so overindulgent and just packed full of stuff that it can be exhausting. And The Wailing for, like, the first two hours of its two-and-a-half-hour runtime, I'm, like, back and forth in, in like, just sort of like, eh, I like it, and then what? It, like, there are moments where I actually thought it was there were like bad filmmaking techni- techniques being used yeah. only for the last half hour as excessive as it gets in it's back and forth. Like you had, you kind of got into it. Like, is it, isn't it like, it makes you guess back and forth, like literally in the end of what the mystery actually is going to be. Yeah. It sort of righted the ship and it um, saw the movie with uh, super producer drew Walner and, and my girlfriend Elaine. And we all had a similar experience of like being frustrated and sort of enduring a lot of the runtime and then being like totally pulled back in by this extreme roller coaster ending. Some, some great projectile vomiting. <laughs> Very yeah. good. Yeah. Another linking uh, to our other film actually. Uh, <laughs> um, this poor projectile. The other is just kind of like soft vomiting, which like, to actually distinguish the two, like one, you know, cr- like ends on a crescendo and the other one sort of, you know, softly spills vomit. <laughs> it's true. That's pretty accurate for both movies. This is true. This is true. So, yeah, I mean, The Wailing is a kind of movie that like it's you have to you have to for it to work the way it's been designed. <laughs> it like it for it to work for an audience member like it just I think there is going to be some uh, exhaustion your overall appreciation for it is is one for don't want to assume but like it, if it's overstuffed with ideas that's something that is commendable as opposed to like a sort of bankrupt kind of junkyard of ideas that seem to be crowding theaters lately you know mm-hmm. like there's just like an absence of ideas and a sort of cynical um just allegiance towards uh cliche and you know just familiarity and like this if it if it's guilty of something it's guilty of something that is at least admirable and at least worth sort of championing that it's full it's brimming with ideas some of them could have used some trimming and some narrowing down and some focus but like you're still arguing that it has a lot of ideas and like that's i think that's always worth fighting for yeah and, and I mean, and a similar running length to movies like the latest X-Men movie. But yeah, <laughs> comparatively, idea-wise, one has way too much and the other has few too, you know, few, not enough. Yeah, and I, th- I think movies of late that are like, you know, similar running times, two and a half hours has become the norm for like a lot of the the comic book adaptations and just a lot of the franchise films. And like, what's interesting, uh, the Nicholas Winding Refn, I heard Elvis Mitchell in his introduction of the movie. He said winding, and you said winding, and I've always said winding. Who the fuck knows how to pronounce his name? <laughs> anyway, um, he had said, like, it's not about good or bad. It's about experiencing. Like, that's sort of how I feel coming out of, like, a lot of the movies that I end up thinking are awful is that as they're happening, they're just bludgeoning you. They're just overwhelming you and sort of crushing you into, like, just letting them happen to you, you know, yeah. and you're like, you're, you're not engaged or disengaged or it's not good or bad until later when you can kind of get your senses back and they haven't been hammered into oblivion. And like, at least I'm, I'm sort of, while the wailing is happening, there's, there's an atmosphere and there's a space where I can consider the ideas as they're happening. And so the two and a half hour running time to me may be over long, but it's at least a time where I'm sort of like, focused and considering things and I'm not being sort of screamed into submission and exhausted ultimately. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's a movie that I think there's a, there's a, if we're going to get into, you know, good versus bad and, and talking about this movie, it's like, there's, there's almost definitely a better, tighter movie in there. If, 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 uh, Nahong Jin and his team were able to focus it, onto the best ideas or the ones that are like most potent or viscerally enjoyable in the film. Mm-hmm. It's probably a better film, but it might not be as interesting of, of a movie. And um, I think going there, it makes me want to swing into the neon demon. I see 20 or 30 girls come in here every day, mostly from small towns with big dreams. And they're all good. You, you're going to be great. 
Beauty isn't everything. It's the only thing. She has that thing. Look at Jesse. Who wants sour milk when you can get fresh meat? I know what I look like. Women would kill to look like this. Does good or bad matter with this movie? Do we start there? Uh, what, what do you think, Joe? Well, okay. Does good or bad matter? Maybe not. But does... Um, because I think the canon of films that he's wanting to associate this with is it is something is from filmmakers who are argued as like, no matter what their legacy is kind of intact. You know, I think that there's, there's hints of David Lynch in this movie is hints too soft a word. (laughs) Is there like a big, is there a Costco size word for hints? (laughs) I mean, homage is a nice way of putting it. Sure. Yeah. Costco sized word for it. Um, I mean, like only God forgives his previous movie. This is like a, a, very heavily indebted to Lynch and Kubrick, I'd say. Yeah. And so so like both both Kubrick and David Lynch, like no matter what, no matter how how much individual films are booed, how you know, or or just dismissed or argued or, you know, sort of passionately passionately disagreed about and um debated, like their legacy seems to be intact. Like at this point, David Lynch has made enough strong, bold, visionary films that like no matter what he makes, he will still have his sort of like his legacy. And that makes his movies debatable. Whereas like, you know, Nicholas Winding Winding Refn, like I think he still is he he reached a sort of like zenith of popularity with a movie um, that he has since seemed to resent. Um, with Drive in 2011, and like his his movies amongst his sort of fan base, like those are those are all beloved by them. But in terms of crossing over to have a sort of mass appeal, like it's still sort of being debated. You know what I mean? And and therefore, like he can make a series of movies where people are then like, nah, not him. nah, fuck that guy. And I think that's already happening. I think like, oh, yeah. you know, amongst our sort of peer group. His last couple of movies, people have been really sort of like they scoff at him. And you and I came out of the screening of Only God Forgives in 2013. And we both were kind of similarly, you know, like uh, spun by that movie and kind of thrilled by it. And um, and everyone coming out was just like, oh, insufferable. And we're like, well, like hearing the little like critic like you know the 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 little like phrases that you say to you know the the rep you know like they were all bad except for us yeah all the poll quotes were not were not positive yeah (laughs) Yeah, so so i think like him sort of insisting it like good or bad doesn't matter um i i think he's wanting to align himself with that legacy with that sort of canon of filmmakers and like I don't I I'm I'm wondering you know when you you and I were initially talking about this episode about art movies and about who has permission like there are filmmakers that we have handed the keys over to where we say like well this person will like you know for all intents and purposes have merit and therefore their work is sort of worthy of being debated mm. and like there are other people that we recoil from that like certain people will call fraudulent and just like full of shit basically and dismissed. So why do certain visionary provocateur filmmakers get debated and why do some of them have permission? Maybe the thing with Refn is something that happens to other like kind of hotshot directors that like have moments where a movie like drive, he, he, probably was pretty confident in that movie he tends to like his own movies quite a bit you know he's he's sort of like tarantino in that way it seems like nobody likes reffin's movies as much as reffin but he was clearly confident with drive but he could have never probably guessed how that movie would seize like would capture pop culture like would would kind of have a pop culture moment when it came out and there are people that have never seen that movie that know the movie, that know images of it. The, yeah. the, the Gosling character, his outfit, they know that stuff. It became sort of famous. He could never have known that, but 
I don't know. I think maybe he just wasn't. It's it's an it's an interesting case because he had plenty of films before before Drive, some of which got some attention, like Bronson or the Pusher trilogy, but never on that scale. And maybe he never wanted to be the director that he was for Drive, or like he never wanted that. I don't know. It seems like these 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 last two movies are a direct sort of statement of like, this is more what I want to do. And he, he kind of says that in interviews. I don't know. It, it is a good question and I'm not sure I have an answer for it. Yeah. It's, it's just interesting. Like, you know, even Quentin Tarantino, you feel like he's kind of dismissive of, of Refn because like, you know, when the year that drive came out, Quentin Tarantino went on record saying like drive was a nice try, which (laughs) can't get any more sort of like dismissive than that. (laughs) <laughs> and like I, I, I part of me it's interesting because like I'm at a divide basically because I think that um, this movie has such an interesting cocktail that's very unique to the sort of the art film and it's it's got this like level of like intensity that is like it, it evokes a kind of like David Lynch intensity where it's like simultaneously uh, immersive, terrifying, and by nature of its like unflinching focus, almost kind of hilarious. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, that's something that Black Swan also did. But like, I had just a weird allergy to that movie because I felt like there was a camp happening in Black Swan that people weren't acknowledging. Mm-hmm. And I felt like there was something just innately hilarious about that movie that also wasn't getting acknowledged. And so, like, I for some reason felt like it was a flaw of the movie that its tone was like muddy, and like, and that was one of our first conversations, Eric. It so, was, yeah. You're like, well, I love that movie, and I was like, well, I don't. <laughs> I didn't like True Grit. Like, I did. So, our, our first uh, disagreement. So with this film, like, I think it features some of his best directing and his worst mm. because it's like. The first half of the movie has like this this like it's it's gorgeously shot. Um, which do you know the the name of the cinematographer? Yeah, Natasha Brer, who yeah. uh, shot the Rover and is a talent man. Holy oh my God. God, she yeah, she's incredible. Yeah, uh, and so like it's it's a gorgeously shot movie, and it's like it's got this intensity to it that like that's built into these absurd circumstances of this like young girl coming to Los Angeles to try to make it as a model. And she's sort of lost in this kind of like uh, weird vacant ghost town maze of LA. And like before the movie takes any sort of like extreme turns, the sort of just built in natural surrealistic tension is simultaneously unnerving and hilarious or hilarious because it's unnerving. Mm. And I, I think it's like some of, yeah, some of his best directed sequences are in that first half of the movie. Mm. Um, she has a photo shoot with like a well-known photographer, like halfway into the movie that like, he's like legendary. Like he doesn't work with just anybody and he's going to do like a test shoot with her. And it's this actor from Dexter, and he's got this like hilariously just severe face, <laughs> and he just stares. And it's like that scene is is un- like it's suspenseful without knowing why, and it's like funny and like gorgeously shot. And so it's this like cocktail of things that's like that's that's the best moments of like it's just a dynamic reaction where you're just I don't know where this is going. <laughs> And so when the movie ultimately has to decide where to go, I think it gets really uninteresting and sort of lethally dull by the end. Like it's like it's a it's a if the movie can be argued as misogynistic, which I think it could be, despite the amount of women working on it doing exceptional work. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it like if it can be argued that that that's true, um, that's part of its dullness. But yeah, it's just like I, I feel like when it needs to pivot towards to this week's episode has been brought to you by the word pivot. Um, <laughs> uh, when it does need to like switch gears and shift, it goes into this kind of lazy horror terrain where it's like it's not thrilling in the way that it needs to be. Yeah. And there's a sense that the movie 
could go anywhere. Like I remember sitting in the theater being like, well, this like anything could happen and it would mean absolutely nothing. Mm. You know, like there's a sequence where there's like, again, like some beautifully like executed sequences where like two, you're seeing two women driving in a, in a convertible along like what seems like uh, the 101, just along the coast, mm. like right along the ocean. And the sound of the car is so nightmarishly loud that it feels like, oh, they're going to drive off. They're going to drive off the cliff. What? Like, why? I don't know. But like, I thought about that. It was like, well, why wouldn't that happen? Because the movie has sort of lost its mind after a certain point. Oh, yeah. Any, anything's possible. And it would it would be completely insignificant, kind of. And I think like that's where good or bad it just starts to like become less effective. So if like if you're to experience something and you're not to qualify it as good or bad, it just starts to get dull. So like in that sense, it's like it's less effective in the experience. Yeah. No, this first viewing, this is maybe my least favorite Refn movie. Like in uh-huh. coming out of the theater, I was like, wow, that like I'd put it with like Fear X, which is the movie he made with John Turturro that yeah. bankrupted him and led him to make the pusher sequels is I get it. And it actually has a, some tonal similarities to fear X um, in some ways and visual, but I felt pretty unsatisfied with it, but I needed yeah. to like, it was definitely a movie uh, experience where I knew like I wasn't decided yet. I just knew coming out of the theater, it felt like a disappointment. And I think a lot of that reaction comes from what you were getting at this movie when it should be ramping up the crazy peters out in a sort of straightforward, like, and then this happened and then this happened and then this happens. And it's like, those are the moments that should be, you know what this movie's lacking in that. I think something like black Swan, which is a good comparison does better is black Swan is hysterical. It's, it is, yeah. it is a camp fest just done it by Darren Aronofsky through his particular style. Yeah, Refn, yeah, exactly. Refn is doesn't have that, and that's what I've actually been drawn to him as a filmmaker uh, ever since the first Pusher film. Is this he can he will do melodramatic subjects, but like he doesn't do them in typically campy melodrama like hysterics. So this movie is sort of lacking that. It also wants to have like giallo, like crazy Argento like imagery, but it only gives you flashes of that and. I think that's another problem in this movie is the buildup is so good. So drawn out, even though I still think this movie is too long. It's like his longest film uh, at just about two hours. It's too long, but the buildup really works. If you, if you give the movie like on a second viewing, I, I understood much more what he was doing, but his whole reference obsession with um, cinema being is more, it's more important what you don't see than what you do see. Like he's all about that sort of, like trying to probe your subconscious it's things he talks about when he saw one of his favorite movies or i think his favorite film of all time is texas chainsaw massacre and how that movie implants ideas into your head because you think it doesn't show you much and like people sort of cite it as this like experience in brutality but like it's you're imagining most of it like it's not a very gory movie like if you're going to look at it clinically exactly right if you're actually looking at what's presented to you in the images you're not really seeing much so he's been obsessed with this for for all of his films because that movie made an impact on him when he was young but i think the neon demon represents a stage of not where he's indulging it too much but like the it, it it it's like a strange, it doesn't work for the story that he seems to like be interested in telling because my favorite moments in the neon demon are so fleeting that it becomes frustrating and other films of his, I just um, recently revisited only God forgives and to that movie's benefit, it's 90 minutes long and it is, it is only a movie of sequences where it's like Nicholas Winden reference, literally just um, when he makes his movies, he sort of storyboards them in his mind with, Uh, little note cards and they're just scenes that he wants to see like things he wants in his movies. So you really feel that with only God forgives. I feel like there was like a peak sort of um, a peak level of that for his filmmaking with that movie where it's just like, boom, boom. Like what people think only God forgives is boring. Like I understand why that movie doesn't work for most people, but I, I don't think it's boring because it's just one crazy cool kind of like sequence after another 
Neon Demon doesn't want to give you those moments. It doesn't, like, when it cuts away, I always was like, no, no, no. So an image I think of that that is a good example that kind of represents the push and pull I have with this movie in Neon Demon is the Nightmare on Elm Street shot. I'm sure you know yeah. what I'm talking about. The walls. Yes, through through El Fanning's hotel wall, there are these hands coming out of what looks like a rubberized wallpaper, evoking Nightmare on Elm Street. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful and scary as hell. And then you add the amazing... Uh, Cynthia Cliff Martinez score underneath it. And I'm like, holy shit. Like I wanted more of that. And he cuts away from it just when you're starting to get into it. And that is kind of how the movie peters out where it ramps up into a horror movie, but man, he's so good at suspense, but he doesn't seem interested in entertaining the audience with suspense in the way a director like Brian De Palma is someone that we really came to appreciate in our previous episode. And I guess I wanted more De Palma suspense in this movie and it's lacking it. Well, I think only God forgives, like there's a point to its anticlimax, I think as like, or at least there's one that you're able to read into the sort of like the theme of revenge being this like impotent pursuit. Like you're, you're watching Ryan Gosling, who's arguably the hero and he he's circling the villain of the piece who's basically, you know, in an unkillable sort of force and he gets the shit beat out of him. And then eventually he's castrated. And the, the whole thing is a sort of like slumping kind of defeat where you're just like it where the, the sense of anticlimax, I think, has a thematic purpose. Mm-hmm. And like with this movie, again, like the first half of it, the build like when it it evoked like a lot of those great tense moments in movies like Mulholland Drive where Justin Theroux is talking to the sort of pale cowboy character and you're not sure what's being negotiated, but it's of such a tense exchange and because of its tension, it's hilarious. And like the, the first half of neon demon is like, there's so much of that. And like when the movie eventually shifts and has to sort of like figure out where it needs to go in this sort of in the in this sort of like giallo insanity, like I think that's when when he starts to show you things it and there there is there isn't a sense of kind of like re- restraint, and there's just like I'm going to show you how crazy I can get, and it's <laughs> this is boring like. You're you're really going to do this to this character, like something so trite and that's been so overdone. And it's just like, I I think the people that are most critical of the movie are throwing out what could be considered spoilers, you know, in terms of like, you know, like necrophilia. Oh, my God. Like, blah, 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 blah. And like, so I think the movie, like, I think he thinks he he's really going to like shock audiences but it's just it to me it's just so dull. You know what I mean? There's there's something that's just like dead endingly dull about where the movie goes. And it like it does feel like it could go berserk and then it just doesn't. And like even when it, it sort of is attempting to be shocking, it's the least effective section of the movie. Yeah, and I have to admit as well that the stuff that another thing I've loved about Refn his through his entire career is a, a sort of the way he's always used genre movies and moments or images things to you he uses it as a shorthand in his films to kind of leap you into another kind of movie all of a sudden yeah. so his movies are especially uh enjoyed by folks like you and me who love movies and get into the weird and wild like all kinds of genre movies that are out there not just american films but that are out there so he's touching on these as a shorthand but i feel like he he could move he's so talented as an image maker you know like every, the performances he gets from his from his actors in all his films you know like you look at a lot of his films and the actors in them usually are giving some of their best performances or most memorable performances of their careers. Like he's, he's making use of what a Ryan Gosling has and taking it, like making the best use of it uh, for cinema and El Fanning applies Mads Mikkelsen or Tom Hardy. Um, all these actors that have, that are like well-known for being strong actors. Like they're very memorable in his films. He yeah. clearly creates an environment that people thrive on artistically, but I feel like he 
he's been in a new stage of late. Like it seems like Valhalla rising was one of the earliest examples of this kind of movie he would make. And then drive became a more mainstream example of that. And then he sort of wanted to revert into more movies like Valhalla drive, uh, Valhalla rising with these last two. And I, I, driving. <laughs> I, I think, um, only you know, God drives <laughs> far be it from me to try to, t- I'm not trying to say that this is, um, so, that he needs to do something new. I'm not trying to be one of those fanboy types. Like I yeah. want Refn to do what is most uh, exciting and enjoyable for him as a filmmaker. We've we've talked about this with other filmmakers like David Gordon Green. Like they get com- people complain about them. Wes Anderson. They're kind of doing this thing that you almost expect out of them, and it reaches a. Uh, there are times where people find it quite boring, and then other times the alchemy seems to work. So. I have no doubt that if Refn stays on this sort of vibe that he's on lately, he'll give us another movie that will probably have a better success, like crossover success, find a bigger audience. But it would be, I would love to see him reach a new, move on to something new now, because I feel like he's kind of done as much as he can do with this style of the genre shorthand where you you get what he's going for, but yeah. there's a point with this movie where I was like, I want you to actually give me more of that, and that would be more refreshing than what yeah. you've been doing. Well, there's 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 a real kind of bratty, kind of shit talky quality to him that's been like has become kind of more outspoken in him lately, or just maybe like the his quotes are just getting sort of pushed more because of the promotion of Neon Demon, but like. You know, there there was a point after his Q and A with Adam Wingard. After I saw like the guest, he was like conducting a Q and A, and he had like a, a kind of a an inspiring answer to one of Adam Wingard's questions to him, which was like, "How do you make the transition between like your sort of small movies that you're struggling to get made to something on a bigger scale?" And at that time, he had I think just left. Um, Logan's run or at least the prospect of that and then was transitioning into what was going to become Neon Demon and he was like well look the more the bigger the movie the more people you're going to have to answer to and if that's the type of movie you want to make but great but like that's not the type of movie that I want to make I want to have control and in that sense like you know you, you want to give a visionary filmmaker whatever they want to deliver the sort of most effective vision possible. And then, and then out of that sort of like inspirational quote, he's just been getting like kind of shit talking and saying like, it's not about good or bad or getting booed at con is like the most punk rock thing that can happen or fuck Lars von Trier. And I remember like seeing him at a Q and a for the documentary about the making of only God forgives my life directed by Nicholas winding Refn made by his wife who is a great filmmaker on her own. Yeah. Um, and the neon demon is, uh, dedicated to her. Yeah. I don't, is that a compliment? I, I don't know. Like, okay. That's the thing that I want to get into is that like, yes. arguably like this movie kind of feels insulting, you know, in a way. And I know that I'm pretty sure she was a model. So I think there's something interesting about just the natural tension that this the the surrealistic tension of the world like cuz it's a fucking weird world i've never been a part of it necessarily um but it it seems weird and horrific and um and so like i think he made a good first half to that dedication to his wife that ultimately loses its mind and has like nothing really to say um about femininity about the male gaze about objectification but like, in terms of his his like shit talking qualities, his more Kanye West tendencies, he like he was like uh, you know he basically was dismissive of Lars von Trier. Which like say what you will about what Lars von Trier has done, how manipulative he is. He can manipulate. He can take like a movie like Dogville. I thought about recently, mm. where it's a it's a film whose uh, alienating devices are immediately in your face. You're watching a movie on a sound stage. Its artifice is plain and simple. And somehow you get pulled into its melodrama regardless of these things that are in your way. And you get swept up into this need for revenge. And then when the revenge comes at the end of the movie, it's so total and so devastating 
that you're like you're leveled and then when the closing credits come it's the meanest fucking thing you can ever imagine <laughs> you're like he did that like he took you on this journey and it's devastating and he's not always great he's made like incredibly forehead slappingly frustrating film <laughs> movies that are like are wincingly like that are embarrassing but he, like i feel like Lars von Trier can devastate he can make a movie like Dancer in the Dark, which made me cry like the day I was born, basically. Yeah. And it's just like, say what you want. He, shh, of course he's manipulative. Of course. But he's also visionary, and he can devastate. And I have yet to be devastated by a Nicholas Winding Refn movie. Yeah, yeah. He's he's not interested in that emotion. You know, like that that kind of emotion, I think. he. I think he is... Yeah. He's got like... Uh, a sort of Asperger ceiling to what he wants to feel. <laughs> Possibly. Yeah. It's, <laughs> I, I think, you know, that neon demon is, is a, it's complicated for me because I texted you yesterday upon watching it a second time. And I'm like, does this make me, am I a ref and apologist? If I think this movie is kind of awesome on a second viewing. And you're like, I think so. You know, <laughs> like you just, you quickly said, yeah, probably. And, that's definitely a factor. I'm a huge fan of this director. I've never yeah. made that a secret. But what did come... There's an interesting thing that happened to me watching it when I knew where it was going. Right. And n no more expectation of a shock or a twist was was there anymore. I could sort of open myself up more to what he is going. And I think there are possibly more ideas going on than I at first thought with even... like what he's saying in the end of the movie. It's just not necessarily, it's definitely not, he's not saying anything original. He's just sort of putting a finer point on it. Like the whole idea. I mean, I guess before, is it worth like, should we spoil the movie a little bit at this point? I, I feel like it's okay to, um, what do yeah, you think? I mean, the people, uh, the people who want to see it, like they can turn us off right now. The people who have seen it and hate it don't care about yeah, yeah. the sort of shock, shocking in air quotes twist well, well, the movie takes. I'd even say that people who hate his, hate this movie might still be really interested to know what other what what we what other people might think is going on in the end. And yeah. so yeah, let's let's just put a spoiler stamp right here. We're we're gonna talk much more specifically about the end of the movie because it's worth it at this point. So in some ways, this movie is kind of linked to Only God Forgives in that you had pointed out, we're meant to think in that film that Ryan Gosling is our hero. Yeah. But when he gets the shit kicked out of him, that's sort of the ultimate reveal of like, he's not. This violent, sadistic, crazy cop is actually, I think, the protagonist of that movie. And Gosling and his family, like Kristen Scott Thomas, his mother, they're the they're the invading force, right? The movie's set in Thailand so it makes sense that the actual hero of this movie is a Thai police officer trying to rid this American filth, you know, trying to get rid of it out of his country. And he's successful in that movie. There is a similar turn in The Neon Demon that I think was more frustrating when it was a reveal the first viewing. But knowing where it's going was a lot more interesting, a lot more satisfying because Elle Fanning is not necessarily the hero of this movie. And what's, what is interesting and defies or subverts expectations, fascinatingly for me, is she, she always kind of had this in her to... So there's a very clear Lynchian turn that the movie makes. She gets to walk the runway, right? She, yeah. That is a pretty great sequence with the blue and red triangle, and she enters it, kisses herself in the mirror... There's a very clear change that happens. So on the nose. It's so on the nose, right? The the things that and that's that's again where the movie suffers the most is Refn I think thinks he's being more sim like symbolistic or using symbolism yeah. that's like, dude, it's so obvious. It's so on the nose. Um it can be laughable, but Elle Fanning is like not necessarily the good person. It's like she is the invading force. It, it it makes the movie potentially more troubling, but also like perhaps the where we were looking at it wrong all along, like the people like the the two models uh, played by Bella Heathcote and uh, what's the actor other actress's name? Abby uh, Lee, I think. 
and, and then Jenna Malone. And Jenna Malone. All very by the way, just great performances from all three of them. They're more it's more their story by the end. It's just really weird the way Refn reveals it to be their story. It's that's the one like sort of atypical thing he really does do in this film. But he kind of tells a very he makes a very obvious metaphor, a very obvious point he's making. And that's where I'd say the violence that comes in the end or the sort of absurd uh, vomiting of an eyeball, the cannibalism, the the bathing in blood of Elle Fanning's blood that these three do after they murder her in this movie. Yeah, and the sort of ritualistic murder is kind of initiated by a spurned lesbian advance, which is just like, I don't know. That's just like, that's so tired and yes. so like offensively dull, you know, where it's just like, okay, there's that, that's been, you know, single white female. Uh, Showgirls. Like, huh? Showgirls. Showgirls, yeah, that's just like that's been a trope that's been so tired and so like far fetched almost. And like even Black Swan's kind of like sexual frustration escalating everything to this like zenith of operatic insanity. Mm. Like that, that I don't know, I felt like that was a little more thorough. And I felt like through the first section of the movie, through Neon Demon it was kind of tonally clear in a way that black swan wasn't. And then when neon demon becomes black swan, it's like, Oh no, it's not as good as black swan. (laughs) Right. Right. I I, like black swan. Yeah. No, I'm, you know, I'm not surprised that you would appreciate black swan more after neon demon, because it is a very similar approach that they're trying to both the filmmakers are, are going with. But I do think Black Swan had a crossover. That movie was a massive hit that yeah. nobody could have guessed. Made $100 million plus dollars in it's the That US. year that we've talked about, too, where it was right. like 2010, where True Grit became the Coen Brothers' biggest hit. And it was just like, what? This fucking like, dark, black, comedic Western is like, this is their biggest hit this year? And it was like the number one movie several weeks in a row. And like Black Swan on top of it became this like runaway art house crossover hit. Yeah. No, yeah, it was... It was uh, a year where like, I feel like we're not going to get that again, probably. No. And it's not even that long ago. And it feels like that time is long gone. And the neon demon, while I'm partially defending it here, it never would, it never could make that crossover. It, it didn't accomplish black Swan. Just better. Just does a better job of, of a similar sort of thing. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I can see why some people that are defending the movie that find something to appreciate it, I can see what they're going on. I've read a lot of uh, positive reviews where they say the violence that comes in this movie actually has ideas and an, an attempt to fit in thematically with this movie much more than even a movie I like better, like Only God Forgives. Because Only God Forgives is a sort of, it's like a, it's like a, it's like a refin sort of jerk off session of like, what do I want to see? Here it is. And he's just going to find almost the barest minimum points to give so he can show you that. Like he always wants to justify in some ways the violence or make it like sort of like he's he's trying to lead his stories to a point where he can present those images that he wants to see and show the audience. The Neon Demon actually kind of connects it a little bit better by the end. He just does it in a very obvious way. And he's kind of obsessed with like classic Greek, like motifs, like symbolism that is obvious at this point. The make Elle Fanning making out with herself in the mirror. Um, uh, the, the model that by the end, after they've eaten Elle Fanning, they've killed her, showered in her, bathed in her blood, and then they eat her. She coughs up her eyeball. It's It's so hilariously like over the top. Yeah. The, yeah, the like uh, the director's cut of like a white snake video is what it looked like. It was just like <laughs> what the fuck, like this like nineteen eighties like just porn outtakes is what it, it was just like women slow motion showering. I was like, what the fuck? Like this is he's doing this on purpose, and he's kind of an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's the the gaze of this movie. I feel like could have its would almost require another like half hour of this podcast that we we don't need to devote to it. But I I vacillate with it. Where at times I'm like, oh, it's kind of interesting what he's playing with. Where um, the everybody El Fanning uh, the use of mirrors and reflection in this movie um, is done to an excessive amount. Everybody is the the gaze of this movie is meant to give you the feeling of El Fanning. Like everybody wants to look 
at Elle Fanning. So yeah. the camera is usually focused on characters that are looking at her or it's her seeing them look at her in that way. That's really interesting, but the unavoidable thing and perhaps other missteps that come along is that Nicholas Wendin Refn has, is a man. He can't change that. And yeah. he has his gaze and he makes his movies with things that he wants to see. Well, yeah, you get some kind of old fashioned and sort of boringly anachronistic, like male gaze that fits in a Brian De Palma movie from the seventies. Cause you can kind of separate yourself and be like, well, um, it doesn't make it better in a De Palma movie. It just understand it more here. It's a little bit like he knows what he's doing, but I, I, you can kind of feel like, but does he know what he's doing or is he just sort of operating on a visceral, like, uh, like an instinctual level. And he might be a bit of both and it can be thrilling to have a director that's, um, trying to just probe his like subconscious for interesting ideas and images. And he can do that very successfully. This movie yeah. for all its fall faults has amazing moments in it. And yes, yeah. yeah, it's highly cinematic, but still troubling. And I, that it's an, it brings me back to, I'd love to see Refn sort of go for a new approach, try something new with the next film. It could be really, really good for him. Well, and I think there's almost in, in his sort of statement that like, it's not good or bad. It's, it's about experience. There's almost this impatience that he wants people to fast forward past their initial response to his movies and almost be in this space where he's got his certified legacy and they can, you can pinpoint Maybe this wasn't an overall great work, but there's greatness in it. And I think he's just got an impatience where he's just like, like no, 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 it's a good, get, get to where you're celebrating me again, you know? And like, because yeah. you and I, as we were discussing Brian De Palma's work, when we were talking about De Palma, the documentary, still in theaters, um, <laughs> like his most flawed movies, there are sections of undeniability, is what we talked about. Like Body Double, probably one of your least favorite Brian De Palma movies. Yep. Um, there are sections of it that are still exhilarating that cannot be denied. And like, there are sections of the neon demon where like maybe his, maybe Refn's legacy as a visionary art film director will be unquestionable someday. Like it feels like there's enough of a backlash now with its 44% on Rotten Tomatoes that it's just like people kind of want to call him a fraud but it's like maybe there will be a day where he he's he's locked in and people love him the way he wants to be loved, but also hates that he's being loved. But anyway, the, that they appreciate, they can debate his movies because he's he's a worthwhile filmmaker, and that's just like such a such a weird. We're at a weird point with him because it's like I, I think a lot of people have their their go to directors who they, no matter what, they love them and they have permission. And even if their movies are challenging, they will still, they'll make excuses and allowances, you know? And he, he doesn't seem to be at that point in terms of like the cultural conversation about him. Right. And he wants to speed past it and, and have people be like, no, I'm, I'm great. Right. Right. He wants to speed past the stuff that De Palma himself brings up in the documentary of like, yeah. all your films are judged at the fashion based on the fashion of the time. Yeah, absolutely. Refn is so hyper aware of that because he is a, he is a very savvy marketer, a brander. Like there's a reason this movie, every time you see the title, the neon demon, it's stamped right below it with NWR. He wants to connect he knows the that, importance of his name, of branding that, that it's... I hated a, that so much. You hated that? See, I thought it was very fitting with the movie that he was telling, but yeah. he's going to do it for his other films. You know, another thing that kind of bothers me about Tarantino, but I also sort of laugh that he just does it, is he will be like the eighth film by Quentin Tarantino. Like, he's right. keeping track in the credits. Down. Right, right. And it's... um, It's... I... I think that kind of stuff is the stuff that we will be talking about when we talk, when, if we, if we visit the neon demon two decades from now, if Refn's career is coming to an end or he's, he's not making films anymore. And we look back at this movie, we're going to talk about that stuff. Will it be in a good light or a bad light might not matter so much, especially by then, but it will at least have given time will be the ultimate. It's always the thing that's going to decide and Refn wants to speed past that into the the like 
we look back on him and reflect on his films that we didn't like, like we look at back on them more fondly. He wants to go to that moment, like you said, Yeah. but he does need to earn it. And that's why um, it can, it's just going to always be fun to see his, whatever he does next. But mm-hmm. yeah, I got a, the neon demon for me has been a good experience for me as a ref and fan to be like, he can't, I can't always defend his movies and I don't need to because he yeah, still feel less hypnotized. Like you have an agency in your appreciation for him. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's good because you don't want to unquestionably just think any film is great by a filmmaker. You love yeah. we that, that whole problem we have with it was, I think it was initially um, Malik or oh, yeah. Terrence Malik. And it was just like, that's your response. Like to the, to his latest movie is you just say his name and that's supposed to lull me into some sort of understanding of why it's great. It's, it's reffing, man. Oh, I get it. Okay. And you know, when you met me, Joe, for, you know, when we first started talking about movies like Black Swan and True Grit, I probably would have fallen into that camp with Reffin. And it feels good with the Neon Demon to be like, okay, I still love, I, I'm, I can't, he's, one thing I know for sure is that he's not a fraud. This is an extremely talented, savvy filmmaker. Yep but yeah. one that still is going to make films that I might not enjoy as much. And that's the best like lesson to take away from it is still super valuable and still lots to talk about, lots to chew on, even yeah. though the movie is kind of dumb. It's kind of a dumb movie, but it's also kind of fascinating at the same time. Yeah. There's a, there's a new series uh, on vice land, the vice TV channel called vice guide to film. And there's a there's a recent episode about David Lynch and Louis C.K. is talking about David Lynch. And he's he's like, yeah, I don't think he makes a movie like because Roger Ebert was one of the the biggest critics of David Lynch films, eventually going on to love Mulholland Drive and putting it in his top 10 for 2001. He still was like one of his biggest criticizers, like just took him to task about his misogyny, just about his like kind of like mean-spirited hollowness that he he felt like he was guilty of. But Louis C.K. is talking about David Lynch, and he's like, I don't think he he makes movies to have Roger Ebert go, yep, that all worked. You know, he wants something to be irksome. He wants something to challenge, to like, to keep, to throw you off your axis, to kind of keep you disoriented. And I think Refn is also one of those filmmakers. He's a he's he's going to provoke you. He's going to piss you off. He's going to make you feel angry. He's going to want. He's going to compel you to call him a fraud. And those filmmakers are frustrating and sometimes like incredibly rewarding. And the 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 kind of like world we live in now, like a lot of the movies that are sort of neon demon is indebted to. A lot of those didn't make a lot of money. Mm-hmm. It's just there was a value placed on those movies um, where they, you know, th- there was an importance to them. And, like, they had to get foreign investors that saw the, you know, the potential lucrativeness of it playing overseas. But also that these movies should exist and matter just because of their artistic merit. And now we're in an era where, like, streaming platforms like Amazon, like Netflix, they can, they're starting to bankroll these you know, like these very unique filmmakers and they're taking chances and hopefully that can continue to happen. You know, we're at the tail end of the opening weekend of neon demon opening wide and it didn't do very well. Um, hopefully it can, it can find its audience and it could potentially piss them off, (laughs) make them angry, make them make a movie of their own. You know, like there's right. there's there's plenty to provoke and incite in in other people, and uh, and I, I just feel like that like kind of like the whaling, like it's mm. full of ideas. Some of those ideas might be lethally dull, might be boring, might be frustrating, might be ugly, but you have to contend with it. The the way Mark Maron says it has to be reckoned with, yeah, and with if you will, <laughs> uh, uh, but like. You know, like that's that's rare and that's becoming even more rare. And like, I don't think this is a death sentence to movies like this. It's not doing well because I think like they're still trying to figure out how streaming platforms can exist in the theatrical realm. Yeah. Like how it can still work. And like the model for it before with like overseas financing being responsible for a lot of David Lynch's late later movies, like from the 90s onward. You know, you got a lot of French financiers to make his movies. 
and they didn't make a lot of money. You know, like Lost Highway was five million. I think it made like one point five million in the U.S. Yep, and so that's the risk. But then, like those movies are sort of savored afterwards, and like we'll we're just gonna find out what what legacy Refn has from here on out. Yeah, we gotta let time decide on that as as usual. But it's it's certainly gonna be a fun ride throughout the years here, you know, to keep revisiting whatever he puts out yeah. next. And you know, he yeah, some people are gonna call him a fraud, a fraud. Some people are gonna tell him to fuck off, but he can't. He's too he's too good of a film. He's too important of a filmmaker to me. Like he's vital. Important's not a word yeah. I like. He's vital, and you know, for all the issues we have with this movie, we need, these are the types of movies we need more of brimming with cinematic ideas Mm -hmm. specifically for the cinema and how that will merge with the streaming realm of like places like Amazon and stuff is going to be kind of fascinating. And it's, what's going to allow this movie because it was made on a budget. That's the other thing. Refn is making these movies on a budget. I think the, the, but the, this one was 5 million is what I heard. It's going to do just fine. It's going to probably make that back theatrically around the world because his movies do travel well enough. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, that, only God forgives was a financial success, but you wouldn't know that by looking at the U S box office for it, but it was such a small movie and, and it will live on and people will find movies like this on streaming services because they're weird enough and made by a specific filmmaker enough written about enough that people will find them. So he is, he's a good director for Amazon or the Netflixes of the world to like sort of, you know, invest in and take a chance on because everybody is just trying to figure out how this is. Everybody's figuring out what doesn't work. And when they do figure out what works, it's going to be because of like filmmakers and like Refn and like auteurs that they took a chance on, which is um, super exciting. And I'm just glad it's happening. Um, I just hope that the next one's better. That's all. Eric, are, are you hearing my cat purring on mic? I couldn't. No, I would like to though. Right, right there. Uh, just faintly, just faintly. Yes. <laughs> it's my, it's my mountain lion. <laughs> it's your mountain lion sneaking into your, uh, your hotel room right there. Yeah. Another moment in the movie that I wish would have went longer, but he cuts away from it. Yeah. We didn't even get into it, but it's also worth saying that, the, uh, Keanu Reeves needs to be in like Refn needs to make a Keanu Reeves movie next would be yeah. so nice because give the guy more to do. <laughs> I, I, I love the sort of like career that, Keanu Reeves is like can have right now. It's so great. He's in the new Anna Lily Amir Poor, who made Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, uh, her new film. He's in that. Bad Batch? Yeah, Bad Batch. Um, He's in the Eli Roth movie that he last made. Right, right. Knock, knock. Yeah, that's true. I love that he's he's working with sort of sleazeball directors and uh, like he can be so interesting in those films like that. Or sleazeball. I mean, just, just films that are like well below his sort of budget level as a, as one of the last remaining movie stars that actually exists in Hollywood. So it's cool that he's essentially like, I've got so much money. I just want to like, it's for him. Reeves is on to his legacy and he's making interesting films now that will secure his legacy as, uh, we need it. We just need to have a Reeves episode again, maybe after, uh, let's just argue his career. He's awesome. So yeah. Um, another thing that I wanted more of that I was not given in the neon demons. So, uh, Refn is if nothing, uh, you know, deeply happy to, uh, take away the things that we want or not give us the things I want. So, um, we'll, we'll see how that goes in the future. But, um, what do you say? Should we wrap up this episode? Yeah. All right, so yeah, let's wrap up uh, episode 133 of Adjust Your Tracking. Uh, Once again, we are brought to you by theplaylist.net and part of the Playlist Podcast Network. There's things happening in in behind the scenes. I've been talking with uh, Drew beyond seeing a movie with him this weekend, which is a rare treat, seeing The Wailing. Uh, We talked about how the podcast is going to move forward and things that we're going to do. And uh, some some stuff, you know, there'll there'll probably be changes to the feeds. You know, we're probably at some point going to separate these podcast feeds because it makes more sense that way. So just be paying attention. But for now, you can find all the latest episodes that are on the Playlist Podcast Network uh, on 
the Playlist Podcast iTunes feed and, of course, on the playlist.net. So find us there. Um, comment on the blog post if you like. Rate and review on iTunes. That's super helpful for us. Um, that'd be great. You can email us at adjustyourtracking at gmail.com. How else, uh, where else can people find us, Joe? Twitter at adjustyourtrack. Um, you know, you know what I'm saying? And then, uh, Facebook, we're on there. Correct. That's true. We, we need to also, uh, we, we, we need to do more original Twitter posts. I, I think it's something that, uh, you know, our fearless leader, Rodrigo Perez, uh, leader of the playlist.net is, uh, asking of us. So we're, we have to we have to do more tweeting, I guess, Joe. Okay. Thing, things right. we got to do. But yes, we are on Twitter. We're, we've been there for a while. Follow us. Find us on there. That'd be great. Um, and if you do, we'd be very thankful. And we're thankful to super producer Drew Walner. Thankful to Rodrigo Perez and everybody at the playlist for hosting this show. And uh, not as thankful as I am to get to talk with you, Joe, about another director that we uh, just can't seem to talk enough about. Yeah. Thanks for talking it out with me.